it's going to cost you more than you ever thought it was going to cost. And it's going to take more time than you ever thought it was going to take to, <laughs> to get where you want to go. And that being said, have fun. I, I mean, really, if, if you're not having fun starting a business, and, and that includes all of the angst that comes with it, you need to back up the truck a little bit. Hmm. I mean, when, when, it, when it stopped being fun for me, uh, was when the juice starts going out of it. And I, and I needed to reinvent myself. everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as a founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and businesses with patents and trademarks. And if you ever need help, just go to strategymeeting.com, and we're always here to help. Now, to, on today's podcast, we have another great guest, and it's Blaine and Bart or Bartlett. Hopefully, I don't mess up the name. I always struggle with those, but uh, Blaine is is a quick introduction. So he grew up on a farm in Oregon, um, <clears throat> and uh, nature was he, he he says nature was his biggest teacher. And so as he went off, got a degree, got, got in marketing and business, uh, did an exchange program in the Netherlands, and he worked for a newspaper for a while, and then. Uh, evolved over to the human potential industry and he's worked in Asia and middle of the US worked for Bell Labs for a while which I think if I remember right Bell Labs is now part of AT&T um, worked for Nokia and Wisham initiatives and then um, had his uh, wife of uh, I think 20 years or so um, passed on and he decided to step back make a change and that kind of led him to now where he's at today and he'll get into a little bit more of that journey so with that much as an introduction welcome on to the podcast Blaine Hey, Devin, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I gave the very quick run through of your journey, but let's go back in time a little bit. So you grew up on a farm in Oregon and uh, you nature's your biggest teacher. So tell us a little about it. <laughs> good. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in the Willamette Valley. Uh, yeah. Eugene Springfield, Oregon, you know, University of Oregon, uh, track capital of the world, all that good kind of stuff. Steve, you know, Steve Prefontaine. And we had a, you know, a small little family farm. Um, hmm. And you know, some of my earliest memories, I mean, predating actually the farm was, um, you know, having big open spaces in the backyard. Um, and my brothers and I, I mean, you know, this was, you know, back in the 50s, uh, which will date me just a bit here, but we'd go out and just wander and it was fine. I mean, mom, you know, always trusted that we'd, you know, we'd get back home in time. Um, but we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres yeah, in, mm. in the back side of the house here. And so I'd just go out and I'd just fumble around outside. And I was always marveling just at the way that things grew and just the seasonality. And, and in Oregon, mm. definitely there was, you know, definite seasons um, that kind of uh, hallmarked the passage of time. And mm. each season obviously had you know, a growth cycle or a death cycle uh, associated with it, a transition of some mm. sort. So uh, when we actually moved to the farm and uh, you know, so, you know, my chores, I mean, the cows needed to be milked, uh, uh, the hay needed to be uh, brought in. I mean, all of that sort of stuff had seasonality to it. But more importantly, and this is really, I think, the root of this, um, mm -hmm. everything was connected. There was nothing that stood by itself. And when I went to university, you know, economics, you know, the dismal art, I started just kind of, you know, getting cognizant of uh, some of the things that Adam Smith spoke about um, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations. And uh, 
the, the one thing that always kind of fascinated me was his notion around the invisible hands of commerce. Yeah. Yeah. That invisible hand notion, which was predicated on enlightened self-interest. Yeah. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. You know, we're mutual <laughs> trading partners. You have to benefit if I'm going to benefit. And if it was just unilateral, it was not going to work long term. And the whole notion of the invisible hands was predicated on something Smith uh, had written about 16 years before, uh, 16, 17 years before the uh, uh, Wealth of Nations. And it was called the theory of moral sentiment. Mm. And it, it was essentially a treatise on, uh, on connection. Uh, yeah, everything being connected. And it was in part written to uh, counteract some of the stuff that was going around uh, with uh, Rene Descartes and Blaise Pascal, which, you know, I think therefore I am. Separation, man becoming separated. And I use man generically here, man becoming separated from nature. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, uh, and standing on his, you know, mankind's own, yeah, kind of the uber. Uh, yeah, you know, we are the overlord here. That's not the case. Um, the only free market economy that I have ever been able to find is nature. Everything else is constrained in some way. And it's constrained by self-interest. And that kind of fast forwards where, you know, Ayn Rand, you know, kind of comes into play a little bit here. Uh, Milton Friedman, um, rational self-interest. Um, doing things that serve me. It's rational for me to behave this way. It's rational for us to hike our prices and increase our profit margin and the hell with the rest, mm. um, that sort of stuff. So that begins you know, to, to dilute and pollute you know, what would be an ideal around a free market economy. So nature, I'm mean, going to go all the way back to this. And when you look at nature, nature doesn't aggregate. Uh, nature doesn't do things just for the sole purpose of accumulation. It's a center of distribution. Everything in nature serves as a center of distribution in some way, shape, or form. Mm. And that center of distribution notion is really important, I think. So now, now help, help me tie this together. So yeah. certainly understand that you got, you know, nature and how it all applies and where that would be applicable. Now, how did that, and then you went off to university. Now, how did that go with your career? Because I think you started out in the newspaper industry and then you started to shift <laughs> over to the human potential. So how did you, one, you know, how did you make that transition? How do you make a business out of that? And how do you make, you know, you know, make a, a career out of that, so to speak? And, you know, how did that play out over the, the course of your, uh, your journey? Yeah, no, I, that's a great question. That, 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 that migration, uh, you know, when, I'd like to think that there was, or I'd like, yeah, I don't want people to think. I would like to think that there was some great uh, master plan. There really wasn't here. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my experience in nature growing up on the farm actually provided kind of a philosophical foundation and yeah, philosophical in the sense of beginning to kind of frame how life could be. You know, I mean, it was an orientation, it was a context, it was a placeholder. So mm -hmm. I get into university and I get into traditional business and you mentioned um, my work uh, I went to school in the Netherlands, uh, mm. an international school of business. There was a, it was an exchange program, my junior year abroad, so to speak, and that's where I was first introduced with, you know, to Ayn Rand, uh, mm. Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, and it was kind of like, oh my God, this. And you know, growing up in the you know the west of the United States, self reliance, mm. you know, you, know you, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I mean, Ayn Rand's works really resonated with me. 
Yeah, and just as a complete aside, that's one of my favorite books slash movies. You know, the movie series, I still enjoyed it. It was one where it was kind of a bit more disjointed as they had to do movies over a period of time. And it's certainly one, just as a side note, that I, I'm, I'm certainly a big fan of the the work as well. Exactly. And and, and so there was that piece, but there was also curiosity. I mean, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. So I started reading real early. I started reading when I was about four years old. Uh, literally, truly started reading when I was about four years old. Um, mm. I had finished, uh, you know, well, we won't go into that. That's a, that's a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> but in but, terms of the reading, um, mm. very eclectic, uh, Carlos Castaneda, uh, Abraham Maslow. Uh, I mean, I would read anything and everything I could get my hands on. And mm. I started connecting dots. And one of the things that uh, began to emerge for me as I started you know, moving out of university and into, you know, having to make a living for myself was a realization that most every organization I had ever experienced, having experience with, was toxic in some way. And by toxic, I mean toxic to the human spirit. Um, so let's, now, before we dive into what you're doing today, let's talk just a little bit more, kind of what that sir started as a newspaper, and then you decided, hey, I'm going to switch over to... Now, you talked a little bit about human potential industry before when we chatted. Was yeah. that when you were working in Asia and when you were working in the US or Bell Labs, or was that more of a traditional job or how did you know what what did you do when you're working for that period of your career i worked my way through through school basically and in you know, in eugene oregon um yeah i had you know contact at the uh, the local newspaper i mean and i i worked you know at warehouser i you know, <laughs> timber industry you know worked in sawmills i mean just summer jobs and that kind of stuff i mean i started working when i was about eight years old mm -hmm. um my dad was a serial entrepreneur, but the newspaper came along and it was, uh, as a college student, you know, a, a nice way to just kind of, you know, pay the rent, um, as mm. I was going through school. And, uh, after I got out of, out, out of university, um, they offered me a job and then it was in marketing and well, circulation, circulation, advertising sales. Uh, mm. so it did, did work there. And then, and this was serendipitous, um, my roommate at the time, um, still, you know, one of my best friends in the world, he ended up actually managing the paper. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he said to me, I'm getting, yeah, there's, there's this program I'm doing. I think you'd really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the very first human potential development programs, uh, that were being offered back in the early 1970s, mid 1970s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I said, well, I got nothing else to do today. I may as well go as a five day program. And so I went and absolutely blew my socks off. Uh, it took the intellectual construct of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization being the pinnacle up here and actually uh, gave me an experience of what that could be like. Yeah, Self-actualization as a concept is interesting, but as an experience, it blows your doors off. It absolutely does because it removes anything around being a victim in life. Mm -hmm. and, you know, my life is mine to, 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 to produce. Yeah, nobody and nothing. Uh, if, if when I'm assigning blame to something out there, uh, basically I've given my power away, mm. and and, and kind of consistent with Ayn Rand in, in one way, but but you know, there was a more uh, elegant component to it uh, that I wanted to play with, and that's where I, we started looking at its application in business. So now, so how, so you kind of had this as an idea. Now, how did you start to apply it to your business or to your career, or where did that take you? 
Yeah, well, when I, uh, I took that class, like I said, and one thing kind of led to another, I ended up taking most of their programs, and then they asked me if I'd come to work with them, and I said yes. I mean, it was kind of like a dream job for me. Uh, but yeah, what was interesting around it, and this is kind of, yeah, nature abhors sta uh, stasis. You know, nature, you know, I mean, nature wants to grow. Everything wants to grow in nature. It, 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 you know, looks for expression. And there was this latent piece, and you know, Maslow talked about human potential. Yeah, potential is another word for the spirit wanting to grow, you know, wanting to express itself in, in, in myriad forms. So I said yes to this, and I had never done any uh, you know, public speaking. And this was, you know, this is what we did was you know, public speaking. We, you know, we would hold live programs with thousands of people. So I found myself on stage you know, with you know, all kinds of eyeballs looking back at me. Hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of studies that say, you know, public speaking is the number one fear that most people have. It supersedes even dying yeah, as a fear that people, you know, kind of uh, wrestle with. So I stepped into that and, um, and, and really started exploring what it meant to be alive hmm. and to, to tap in. Now, that's kind of a personal experience. We started looking at in the business, you know, at that point in time. How could some of these notions be taken back into traditional business? And notions that I'm speaking specifically with here are uh, awareness, you know, becoming more aware. Energy follows awareness. Energy follows attention. What am I noticing? What am I paying attention to? Also wanted to start looking at how do we bring responsibility, you know, acting with responsibility as causality back into business rather than people waiting around to be told what to do. What if... They actually acted responsible for the outcomes that they were experiencing in their organization. Hmm. And that, that started to address some of the toxicity um, because you know, most organizations will squash the spirit uh, just to, to uh, create compliance. Do what I said. That's so, what now, I said. so now just to help people kind of move along. So get, get kind of the concept idea now. Let's take it a little bit to the practicality of, you know, Give me an idea. So you went to Bell Labs or you went to AT&T or Nokia. Were you running these programs or, later? or kind of give us an idea of how if you have all these ideas and all this concept and how to apply it, what companies did you actually do it at or, or where did you actually take that? Yeah, the. Um, well, when I left that, in, you know, that industry, so to speak, yeah, I got, you know, I was kind of like I've been there, done this, you know, done what I did, and I was looking really for application in business, and the, the company that I was with wasn't doing that. So I got hooked up with a consulting firm, and the first gig that we did uh, was with Bethlehem Steel. Now, Bethlehem's not around any longer, but at the time, it was one of the largest steel producers in the world. So, one real quick, so give me an idea on kind of timing. So, was this 1970, 1980? Yeah, this would have been late late seventies, early eighties. You know, okay. yeah, actually, Bethlehem was late seventies, and mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the year that we started working with them, that I started working with them, they had lost one point four billion dollars, and that mm -hmm. was real money back then. It's <laughs> so, real money today as well. <laughs> it's real money today. Um, we had made a promise when we actually guaranteed our result. We said, "Look, I think," yeah, and, and we were brought in as part of a. Uh, an initiative to close some plants because you know, this was a uh, reduction in force, the rifts, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And some of our initial studies as a consulting firm said that we, if we can get some concessions, if we can get some work practices shifted, if we can get some things done differently, we might be able to profitably keep open some of these plants, some of mm -hmm. these facilities. So um, part of the contractual uh, 
structure was we will guarantee a result. And if we don't get the result, you know, we'll pay the money back sort of a thing. Um, so we went in and part of my charter going in was to develop programmatic approaches that would address labor and management as a mechanism by which we could begin to get some of this stuff done. And specifically, that had to do with some of the stuff that we had been doing in the public, uh, public development, uh, personal development space. How do we bring that in an appropriate way into a business environment? So we had to you know, work with linguistic structures and a number of different things. Mm. You know, net story, you know, the short and long, pretty long story. And we were in there for a couple of years. Mm. We, we did, we, we did what we promised. And we, we kept these mills open and saved jobs. And it was, for me, proof of concept. Hmm. One of the guys I was working with at the time um, was heading over to Japan to head up an organization. And he said, I think I'm going to need some help over there. Would you be interested? And this is how I got into Asia. So hmm. I went over, loved what I was seeing. We ended up you know, creating the largest consultancy in Asia at the time, human resource consultancy. Hmm. We ended up working with most of the major global companies that were doing business in Asia uh, American Express, Apple. I mean, we, we, we worked with you know, European as well as American firms. Mm. Um, again, with, with this sort of information, this sort of uh, uh, modality. And we're very successful. You know, and, we, and that actually began the, uh, the move back to the States. You know, we uh, were looking around, we're going, well, what's next? And we wanted to move the company headquarters back to the States. It was founded by an American and he wanted to come home. So he had a contact in uh, AT&T, specifically in, in the Bell Labs uh, portion of AT&T at the time. Hmm. And that was the initial contract back into the, uh, the phone system. And this was right after divestiture, shortly after you know, AT&T had been broken up. Hmm. And we ended up developing four major, major training programs, educational programs, you know, uh, manage, management and leadership development programs that were used within the AT&T system for years um, as, as a way to kind of move them into dealing with the consequence of divestiture. And Bell Labs was you know, certainly amongst that because the, you know, Bell Labs, when we went in, um, was a pure R&D center. They, they, they did nothing that was organized around uh, a conversation of margin or profit. You know, they would just invent stuff. Mm. And after divestiture, they now had to justify their existence within a context of a of a PNL, hmm. and that shift in purpose, that shift in mission, was highly disruptive. And that's you know that's where a lot of our work came into play. How do you handle that disruption? So now now let's let's take this just because I want to make sure to have enough time to talk about what you're doing today, bring it forward just a bit. So you've been doing that for a period of time, and I think you worked with everything from Bell Labs, AT&T, American Express, Apple, Starbucks, a whole bunch of different ones as an independent contractor. And then I think you mentioned when we chatted before the podcast about 10 years ago, you lost your your wife and you, you had you took a step back and you decided to reevaluate things and look at how you're doing things and make a bit of a shift or a change. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. You know, just in terms of chronology, uh, with that consulting firm that I was working with, one that we came back uh, from Asia uh, with, I'd gone about as far as I could. It was, it was a closely held company and, and I was getting itchy. So I, I branched out on my own. I started my own company in 87 mm. and we ended up um, yeah, with offices in four different countries. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was a great run. 
you know, we really were doing some amazing stuff. This is where Nokia came into play. I, I developed and led a good chunk of Nokia's uh, global leadership initiative for about 12 years. And we were all over the world. Um, and then in 1990, or I'm sorry, in, in not, not 1990, in 2010, mm. uh, you know, and I'd gotten married in that period shortly after uh, I'd, I'd founded the company. Uh, my wife contracted uh, multiple myeloma, uh, uh, a uh, uh, bone cancer. Uh, basically, it's a plasma cancer. And you know, long battle, uh, but she ended up dying in 2010. And by that time, 2010, I'd had the company for 13 years, uh, well, 97, you know, what, a little bit more than 13, 23 years, I think it was. Um, I, the wind was going out of my sails a little bit. I could do what I was doing pretty much by rote. And it was very lucrative. Yeah, we were, you know, lifestyle was great. But when Pam died, it, it I mean, it literally pulled the rug out from under my life in, in so many ways, as, as you can probably imagine. Um, it was an existential crisis. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I mean to be a bit dramatic about it. Yeah, everything that I believed was called into question, including mm. how I was working my business. So I took a year off. I mean, I literally, you know, we had contracts in place. We honored the contracts and whatnot, but I started shrinking the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that had to do with taking a look at just how I was doing what I was doing, particularly from the messaging perspective. Mm-hmm. If, I had, if I had to work with another client to achieve quarterly goals, I was going to shoot somebody. Mm. Uh, because nature doesn't work in that kind of a, a sequence. Uh, and there, and, and again, I, I'll, I'll go back to nature here. There was a, uh, I had, I had, I had gotten separated from what got me started mm-hmm. and, and Pam's death actually reconnected to, you know, me to what was important uh, in life, which is relationship. Yeah. How do I you know, actually sustain, create, and maintain high quality relationships in all areas of my life? And I came to actually kind of believe and appreciate that that's all any organization is, a collection of people that are in relationship. Mm. Now, they're obviously in relationship with each other, but they're also in relationship with values. They're in relationship with vision. They're in relationship with goals. They're in relationship with IP. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they're, and, and the problem with change isn't the change itself. It's the disruption to the relationships that change causes. Mm. And, and people aren't schooled in how to handle that yeah they leaders aren't schooled in how to deal with relationship disruption you know they they get dogmatic they get you know i'm the boss do what i say just go out and get that goal you know yeah and bring the game back that sort of a thing and it's a relationship process that we uh, are missing opportunities around because if so, the relationships are working well in the organization, you're going to have a successful organization. So now, now, so take me to now where you're at today. So you had, you know, you did that for a period of career, had a life-changing event, unfortunately, with the passing year of her wife, and they gave you a, a reason to pause and, and reevaluate. You made that change and you said, we're going to change the messaging, the way we do things. So where does that put you at today? What are you guys doing today? And, and you know, how how has that affected where you're at today? The last... Well, this is now 2021. So the last 11 years uh, has been probably one of the most fruitful, one of the most creative, and one of the most productive times of my life. And it's also been one of the most joyful. Mm. Um, 
the company's not as big as it was, and that's fine. Uh, I've really come to appreciate that bigness is not the goal. Mm. Uh, impact is, is, is the goal. And so in answer to that question, I think what we're doing today is having more impact with a broader scope of people and a broader um, range of uh, conversation or with a broader range of conversations. I mean, mm. I've, I've, I've touched literally a million lives yeah, with the work I'm doing. And uh, yeah, I've directly worked with over 300,000 people, directly worked with over 300,000 people. And a good chunk of that has happened in the last 11 years. Hmm. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at you know, ways that we deliver messaging in, in completely different ways than we ever have before. Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of stuff technologically that have come into play. I mean, in the pandemic, it certainly brought a lot of that to the forefront. Uh, but we're delivering programmatic uh, material in, in virtual environments. I'm working right now with, v, uh, with VR as a way to actually develop, you know, deliver some of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so now you I, so, yeah. go ahead. Plenty more things that we could talk about that we'll probably have time and lots of fun rabbit holes to go down that I would love to. But as we're reaching, we try, you know, we keep the podcast about 30 minutes so that nobody yeah. falls asleep. And uh, as we reach towards the end of the podcast, I always ask two questions. And so we've kind of reached that point in the podcast. So maybe we'll jump to those now. Yeah. So the first question is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? <laughs> Um, worst business decision I made, um, I think, I think it was yeah, taking on a partner, um, mm. without really asking myself for the sake of what, mm. I mean, it, it seemed, you know, it seemed logical to take the partner on. I mean, it was a natural evolution of the business just in terms of some of the things we're doing, but the value fit wasn't there. Mm. Yeah. The, you know, she, um, she was coming from a different perspective. And, and I, I mean, in hindsight, I can look back at um, some of the conversations we had early on where some red flags were actually uh, you know, tossed up. Uh, because you know, Money has never been a driver for me. For her, it was the sole driver. Um, and uh, there was a a, a real bumping of heads that kind of you know, came into play there. So, I mean, that was probably the worst decision I ever made. Fortunately, we were able to uh, rectify it in a relatively short period of time, not without some, some angst, but uh, yeah, it, it ended up working. And it, and it taught me a huge lesson uh, to pay attention to values uh, you know, going forward. And, and that one has never left me. I've, uh, my oldest client has been with me for about 33 years now. I've had partners since then. And, um, and as a matter of fact, I ended up building the business uh, into the different countries that we ended up working with solely based on values fit. Yeah. As, as opposed to uh, what can they do for me? Yeah. Sort of a question. I know. And I think that that's an in insightful thing, both on, you know, mm -hmm. things that we learn or th mistakes made and things that you learn. So now as we jump to the second question, which is if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Um, it's going to cost you more than you ever thought it was going to cost. And it's going to take more time than you ever thought it was going to take to get where you want to go. And that being said, have fun. I, I mean, really, if, if you're not having fun starting a business, and, and that includes all of the angst that comes with it, you need to back up the truck a little bit. Hmm. I mean, 
when when it, when it stopped being fun for me uh, was when the juice starts going out of it and i and i needed to reinvent myself no and i i completely agree with you in the sense that if you're not having fun then what's a little bit the point of doing the or being in the business or doing the business so i think that's certainly a good me, or message or a good lesson to take to heart yeah well, you know you go ahead i'm sorry no, I was going to say, um, as we wrap up and, you know, as, as uh, we reach the end of the podcast, now people want to find out more about your business. They want to find out more about you. They want to use your services. They want to hire you as a consultant. They want to be an investor, an employee, be your next best friend, any or all of the above. What's the best way to reach out to you, connect up or, or find out more? You can go to my website, my personal website, BlaineBartlett.com, mm. or you can go to my company website, AvatarResources.com. And a lot of the, I mean, not a lot, all of the work I do is organized around what I'm calling compassionate capitalism. And uh, yeah, I wrote a book on that. I've written six books and or five books now. I'm on the sixth right now. Um, and, and people can find out much more about what I'm up to by you know, getting those books. <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not promoting the books right now. If, if you want to find out more about me, blainebartlett.com is probably the easiest one. And the work I'm doing is avatarresources.com. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to check out both websites, reach out to Blaine, um, learn how to have that compassionate uh, capital in your uh, in your businesses and how to leverage that to even or to be continue to be even more successful. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Blaine. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you uh, would like to tell your journey, feel free to apply to be on the podcast. Just go to inventiveguest.com. If you want to, uh, and if you are a listener, make sure to click subscribe as well as uh, leave a review of the podcast so that uh, every both you can get notifications as all the episodes come out and everybody can find out about the podcast as well. Last but not least, if you ever need any help with patents and trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. Just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time to chat. Well, thank you again, Blaine. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And I wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you, Devin. Yours as well. Take care.